1: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're
0: not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Poop!
0: Poop in the mats! Burn it down and start again! It's a beautiful day. The sky is clear, bright blue, the sun shining down on the roofs of the Viki, the houses and bustling markets and streets thronged with traders and soldiers, women and children, here and there a fur-clad barbarian. You never dreamed you'd say this a year ago, but this is home. When your husband got reassigned to command the fort at Vindolanda, people acted like you'd received a death sentence. They said you would despise it up here, in the great dreary north. They told you horror stories of raiding barbarians, sacking and burning, and carrying off Roman families. Your friends bid you goodbye as if it was the last time they would ever see you. But Vindolanda is nothing like what they described. The fort is a bit rough, yes, but your quarters are adorably rustic, with all the appropriate creature comforts for a family of your rank, and you even have your own private bath. And the village beyond is bustling with traders and their families, people from all across the empire. As you walk down the street, you might hear Syrian at one booth, Gallic at another, here Egyptian, and there Dacian. Traders flock here from all corners of the empire to sell their wares to the soldiers and their families. You can buy anything you want at Vindolanda. Just last week, your husband bought your son a pair of new shoes expensive shoes, as fashionable as any you could find in the most elite markets in Rome. You put them on your son's little feet and watched him run across the polished floor, your heart soaring in joy. When you first came to Vindolanda, your sister came with you. Within the month she'd met someone, the handsome commander of the next fort over. You celebrated their wedding not long after, and she's been deliriously happy since. Next week is her birthday, and you hold her party invitation in your hand. Soon you will travel the military road, only a few miles down to the fort she calls home. The trip will be peaceful, uneventful save for a few flocks of sheep in the road, and you will fear no marauding barbarians. You will gather in her well-appointed villa and celebrate her birthday With all the trappings and traditions you could get back home, you'd barely even notice that you were inside a military fort while you did it. You wish you could show your friends in Rome that the Caledonian border is hardly a death sentence. It's peaceful as a sheepfold, cosmopolitan as any great street in Rome. Attacks from the north are practically unheard of. There is no luxury you can find in the greatest markets in the world that you cannot also find here. You could tell them, of course, but you know, they'd never believe you. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So how do we know that Hadrian's wall was built by Hadrian?
1: Let's be honest, Jenny. Hadrian never built a single block in that wall. He did not build that wall.
0: That's true. Hadrian did not lift a finger to actually build the wall. He probably didn't even touch any of the stone. So how do we know that Hadrian's wall was ordered by Hadrian? How do we know that It was all his idea. He
1: put his name on it. (laughs) That is indeed
0: how we know it. But, you know, for a long time, people did not realize that one simple fact. The Historia Augusta credits Hadrian with building the wall because the Historia Augusta knew what's up, at least here. And this little factoid just makes me think maybe everything in the Historia Augusta is absolutely true. That just blows my
1: mind. Possible. I mean, it's possible. They did their research, whoever wrote it, and they were like, I'm going to put in the wild stuff. I'm going to put in the tame stuff. You tell me which one is true.
0: Yeah, like maybe the Historia Augusta is like the truth teller of the 500s AD. Like that is just something I have to wrap my mind around.
1: It's the truth teller of the 500s AD writing about the 100s AD and the 200s and 300s.
0: Right, yeah. It's weird that the only mention of Hadrian's Wall in any ancient sources is in the Historia Augusta, and they got it right well before anybody else did, except we don't actually know when the Historia Augusta was written, so that's, that's a little up in the air. So anyway... Nobody takes the Historia Augusta seriously, but this is like the one instance where maybe you should. In the 500s AD, the Christian monk Gildas fabricated an elaborate history that claimed that the Britons built the wall themselves to hold back the Picts with Roman help and encouragement. In the 700s, the Venerable Bede, an English Benedictine monk, claimed that it was built by Septimius Severus after the Antonine Wall was built by the Britons. And actually, the Antonine Wall was built about 40 years after Hadrian's Wall, so that's wrong.
1: That belief that Hadrian's Wall was not built by Hadrian was carried forward through the Middle Ages, and scholars were repeating it until 1840, when a gentleman scholar named John Hodgson published a book in which he claimed that the wall had been built by Hadrian. He based his claim on a single inscription. The inscription translated into English, states that this section of the wall was built by legionaries under the orders of Aulus Platorius, governor of Roman Britain from 122 to 124 AD, who himself was taking orders from the emperor Hadrian. We know for sure that the wall was built by Hadrian just based on this one inscription.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting that it's this giant artifact, and the name of the person who ordered it is only just in one weird, obscure place, but it's really clear that that's the person that it was. That's also true of the Great Pyramid. We know that Ramses the Great built the Great Pyramid because his name is, like, in one weird place somewhere.
1: In our last episode, we talked about how Hadrian's Wall was built, and we took a close look at some of the mysterious aspects The wall has a lot of secrets. However, we know a lot more about the wall and the people who built it today than we did in prior centuries.
0: One thing we know is that contrary to misconceptions, Hadrian's wall was not built by slave labor. It was built by the Roman military. They left inscriptions all along the wall to document their work, like the one we just described. They're mostly pretty brief. Adrian Goldsworthy cites the English translations for some. Quote, from the 5th cohort, the century of Cecilius Proculus built this, or the 6th legion built this. Based on these inscriptions, we know that three legions were engaged in building the wall, and at that time, a legion contained about 5,000 men. So, in all... It would have taken about 15,000 men in total 6 to 10 years to build the wall. These men would not have been unskilled laborers, by the way. The Roman army was known for its incredible feats of engineering. Building on a large municipal scale was considered as essential to the military's duties as actual fighting, so much so that every man in the army carried a shovel as well as a sword. But there were also specialized engineering units in the Roman army who were exempt
1: from normal duties it was commonplace for roman soldiers marching in enemy territory to throw up an entire fort from scratch at the end of each day using only earth and timber they could do this in as little as a few hours while under enemy attack they used standardized plans for camps based on how long the army was expected to spend there for instance a three-day camp a four-day camp and so on the men building hadrian's wall were enlisted in the legions Doubtless, they all had experience throwing up a solid, defensible marching fort within a few hours under enemy fire. They would also have known how to build roads, because the Roman military did that too when it invaded enemy territory. It built its own roads as it went, to allow the men an easy path of retreat and letting their baggage trains catch up to them faster. But their skill set was not limited to roads and forts. They would have been able to build siege machines quickly under enemy fire and bridges strong enough to stand for millennia. Many 2,000-year-old Roman military bridges, originally built to facilitate conquest, are still in use today.
0: So when we say that Hadrian's Wall was an astounding engineering feat, built in extremely challenging conditions, and across a forbidding landscape of 100-foot natural escarpments, endless rolling hills, torrential rivers, and hard, resistant ground, that's all true. But the men building it would have been up to the challenge. They did stuff like this all the time. This was just Tuesday for them. The men who built the wall would have been volunteers, not conscripts. At a minimum, they would have been freedmen, as the Romans deliberately did not want runaway slaves taking refuge in the military. These soldiers would have been drawn from all over the empire. Croatia, Gaul, North Africa, Spain, and Italy. The common language in the army was Latin, but you would have heard Hadrian's name cursed in a dozen languages all up and down the wall. The
1: pay wasn't high. At the lower levels, it was generally about equal to what you'd make as a laborer on a farm. But it came regularly, which was not a given in most other professions. And soldiers were also fed, clothed, sheltered, and received high-quality medical care. Food, pay, gear, fodder for horses if you were in the cavalry, And a long list of other expenses were deducted from a soldier's pay, which, I mean, it's the company store, isn't it?
0: There are breakdowns that people have done about exactly how much the soldiers got paid before and after stuff was taken out of their pay to pay for their basic gear and food and supplies and stuff. And it's it's a lot of money. But even with all of that taken out for the time, it was pretty – I wouldn't say it was like you weren't rich – by, you know, ancient standards as a lower-ranking soldier in the army, but it was, like, fairly decent pay and it was steady pay, which was
1: the big thing. And also, like, if you didn't have a family you were supporting, it was kind of a decent amount of money. And a lot of them did have families they were supporting, which we're going to get to in a minute. It wasn't only legionnaires who worked on the wall, however. There were also auxiliaries. These were men drawn from communities allied with Rome. And it's a little harder to say if they were volunteers or conscripts. There may have been a mix of both. The auxiliaries would have been grouped according to their ethnicity. On the wall, there were auxiliary units of Thracians, Batavians, Tungrians, Dacians, Syrians, and many others. Auxiliaries fought according to their own customs and with their own weapons, but under Roman orders. We know a lot less about the officer hierarchy and the structure of auxiliary units as opposed to the Roman army proper, but we do know that these units would have been less skilled at engineering than the legions and were probably paid less. Inscriptions suggest that the auxiliary units were tasked with digging the vallum rather than building the wall itself. You know, it doesn't surprise me that they didn't teach the auxiliaries how to actually build the wall part. I mean, the Romans were really famed for their engineering and like once you teach people your secrets...
0: That is one way to look at it. Another way is that Men in the Roman army proper took years of training. Men in the auxiliaries weren't, you know, like put through the same boot camp and other training and specialized training that the people in the Roman army had. And I haven't done a massive deep dive into what it's like to be in the Roman army and how long it takes you to train and what they went through. It would be interesting to do that sometime. But from what I understand, it would have been probably a lot lengthier and more specialized. The auxiliaries didn't have that training because they didn't go through the same process to get there. Mm hmm. So the wall was mainly built by the legions with help from the auxiliaries. Records suggest that auxiliary troops took a larger role in building the forts, which were a later addition. But it was mainly auxiliaries who manned the wall after it was built. According to military records excavated at the forts, it was common during the wall's history for a single fort to be the base for a single auxiliary unit, all grouped by ethnicity or tribal affiliation, rather than having people of different ethnicities and backgrounds all housed together. We know a lot about which ones served where. For instance, there were Syrian archers at Carverin, there were Belgians at Carlberg, Thracians at Moresby, Gauls at Castlestead and Vindolanda, Nervii, who were Gauls that we talk about in the first Vercingetorix episode, very heroic, at Great Chester's Fort. There were... Aquatic German Dressage Cavalry Units, Batavians. Batavians! (laughs) This was a unit that served earlier under Agricola and probably played a key role in the conquest of Roman Britain itself. They wound up at Castle Cary. All along the fort, dozens of different languages would have been spoken.
1: There were also warrior women serving in the auxiliaries at Hadrian's Wall. We talked about this in our episode on Amazon's Warrior Women of the Ancient Steppe. In 2004, British archaeologists discovered the bodies of two warrior women at the fort of Brocavim. These women died sometime between 200 and 300 AD. Both were between 20 and 45 years old at the time of death, and they'd been burned on their own funeral pyres according to their own customs, along with their horses, weapons, jewelry, a rich collection of grave goods, and a hunk of meat on a plate. Their grave goods indicate a background that was either Sarmatian, Scythian, Or possibly Thracian. Maybe they were Thracian. They might have been Thracians. They might have been redheaded warrior horse lords. Or they might not have been. They might have been Scythians, which is also brilliant, wonderful warlord horse ladies. You know, that was us in a time machine.
0: <laughs> this is where we die.
1: Well, I mean, you know it's me because of all the jewelry.
0: <laughs> well, you know, in the Scythians episode, we do talk about how we plan to go back in time and gaslight the Scythians into letting us into their tribes. So this could be the end game of that. This could have been the end game of that. <laughs> I think it's
1: us. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I've seen my own death. We wind up on Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> <laughs> so all signs indicate that these were high-ranking warrior women within their auxiliary units, buried with honors according to their own customs.
0: I don't think that there were a lot of warrior women in the auxiliaries at Hadrian's Wall, but I think, you know, every so often there was one or two. You know, and I think that it's really great to think about that. There were warrior women in quite a few of these communities outside of Rome, and it doesn't surprise me that there were some
1: women in those ranks. Listen, where you see one warrior woman, there's got to be loads more. Yes, there were obviously more male warriors, but I don't think that female warriors were as uncommon as maybe history has led us to believe.
0: You know, in some areas, such as Scythia, you do find them a lot in the archaeological record, and in some, you don't find them as much, but there has been a historical thing where archaeologists especially in decades past would sometimes dig up graves and assume that a skeleton was male because of their grave goods so that may have happened you know a lot in areas like celtic gaul and britain and stuff like that where there may have been more female warriors just because of the folklore that we get where they are quite a presence
1: i just feel like the reality is if in the history you see two there probably were much more than two on the wall
0: depending on your unit But realistically. Yeah. So anyway, men and extremely rarely, possibly not as rarely as you'd think, women in the Roman military at this time, there's a small chance there would be some in the auxiliaries. I don't think there were any actually serving as soldiers in the Roman army. There might be some kind of outlier case where somebody disguised themselves as a man to serve in the Roman army. I don't know. I would love to hear about that.
1: I'd love to hear that. Get that good, steady pay.
0: Yeah. These soldiers would have served about 25 years, and the lower-ranking soldiers often served their entire career in a single place. Records show that units stationed on the Wall were sometimes moved between forts every few decades or so. Many of the auxiliaries were moved to the Antonine Wall, roughly 110 miles north, a few decades after Hadrian's Wall was built, then later moved back to different forts along Hadrian's Wall when the Antonine Wall was decommissioned. The picture isn't 100% certain, and varied depending on the time period as Hadrian's Wall was manned and active for roughly 300 years, but the picture we get is that a single auxiliary unit would control a fort and the accompanying section of the wall, and as a soldier, you might be assigned to that one fort your whole career with periodic rotations to different mile castles and turrets a few miles away, which might last a few weeks or a few months. Higher-ranking officers were more mobile and might do shorter stints at Hadrian's Wall before being moved elsewhere in the Empire.
1: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stuck you here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is... Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian Mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So, those were the kinds of officers serving on Hadrian's Wall. But what was life like on the wall? We've already talked a little bit about the living conditions at Turrets and mile castles, but this was only a small part of a larger picture. To determine that in more detail, we're going to zero in on one very special fort in the area, Vindalanda. Vindalanda actually predates Hadrian's Wall by roughly 37 years. It was built to guard the old Stainhope Road boundary and it's located about 11 miles south of the wall. But discoveries there tell us a lot about what life was like on Hadrian's Wall, so that's why we've included it here. Vindalanda is an archaeological treasure trove. It was preserved in as much as 13 feet of water-saturated, anaerobic soil, which preserves natural materials to an astonishing degree. 2,000-year-old artifacts made of cloth, leather, wood, and other natural materials that never would have survived under normal conditions have come out of the oxygen-starved soil at Vindolanda. Can we just stop for a minute there? This fort was waterlogged with this special anaerobic soil that just meant that things didn't break down, right? So everything is preserved, like cloth and leather, skin, Things that normally would have broken down, they were able to pull out and date and get so much information from. I mean, that's just incredible.
0: Yeah, it is absolutely mind boggling. And I think that it might have been bog conditions. I'm not 100% sure on that, but reading about it, it's what it sounds like. And it's absolutely astounding. And that's why Vindolanda is so special. Those are rare conditions to excavate a whole fort under, which is why we're spending so much time in this episode talking about Vindolanda, because you cannot, there is nothing like it. It's just incredible. So five wooden forts existed on the site of Vindolanda, built and then demolished one after the other, usually about every 10 years or so, corresponding to new troop deployments here. So it looks like what happened here was that every time a new unit was deployed and moved into Vindolanda, they demolished the old fort and built a whole new one. Why did they do
1: that? I think I know. We haven't talked about what the living conditions were like in there yet, but once we've talked about the living conditions, I'm going to give you my theory.
0: They might have just taken one look around and been like, yeah, we have to burn this to the ground and start again. (laughs) Anyway, in the early 200s AD, the fort started to be reconstructed in stone, and it was reconstructed somewhere around three to five times in stone as well. So I think altogether it was torn down and rebuilt like seven to ten times in total, approximately. One of the most important discoveries to come out of the anaerobic soil at Vindolanda was a complete sword, still in its scabbard, found in the corner of the common living area in one of the barracks. It had a bent tip and was probably discarded for that reason. Another sword, not broken, was found in a different part of the barracks. Archaeologists suggest that it was valuable and probably wouldn't have been abandoned unless its owner left in a hurry. So I don't know, maybe there was some kind of thing going on where this guy had to like run out of his barracks and leave his precious sword. Maybe, maybe there was a fire. I think they would have found evidence of a fire. Maybe it was something else like a like a an attack. But you wouldn't run out without your sword. That's a really good point. So it's a mystery.
1: Things also found on the floor of this particular barrack include a pair of wooden toy swords, almost identical to those sold at the museum gift shop today, as well as bath clogs, knives, arrowheads, ballista bolts, and leather shoes. And I just the idea of bath clogs right now really bothers me. Oh, because it's closed toe? If it's closed toe, like even if it was like Crocs, which had like holes in it, I'm just thinking about the stuff that could get in there. Like, I'm all for the shower flip flops. Yes, but I don't know how I feel about like closed toed.
0: Well, I mean, it might not be the most unhygienic thing that we discover in the barracks. We're going to get to this.
1: I mean, it's a soldier's barracks in the ancient world. It's not going to be the most hygienic thing.
0: Right. <laughs> Another discovery was the hairy dog a fragment of a dead dog with a thick coat still attached. It was found in a ditch north of the fort, and I did a little bit of a deep dive because I was curious because Jen asked me to about dogs at Hadrian's Wall. I couldn't figure out what breed the hairy dog was, and I think that that is still something that's being tested by archaeologists. I don't think people know. I could be wrong on that. I couldn't find a lot on it, but what I do know is that there were dogs at Hadrian's Wall being bred specifically for hunting, and there were different breeds of dogs of all different sizes at Hadrian's Wall. People ate horses. They would butcher horses for meat sometimes, especially towards the end of things, I believe, because things were getting a little bit more dire. But nobody ever butchered dogs that archaeologists have found, except for one time. There's one dog skeleton that was found with marks on the bones that looked like it had been butchered.
1: A lot of dogs had different purposes. And in a place like Hadrian's Wall, some would be trained to be like ratters to deal with the rat infestation. You'd have dogs that perform different duties. Like, I think I feel like as long as the animal served a really strong purpose on the wall, then there would be more of a a feeling to keep it and keep feeding it.
0: Yeah, that's really true. Um, We are going to look at how it it became more difficult to keep horses as time went on on the wall. I don't think we're going to get to that in this episode, but I think you're absolutely right in that there absolutely definitely would have been rats and other pests. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in this episode. You can see in the archaeological record, because there were dogs of so many shapes and sizes, that people were breeding dogs for specific purposes up there. So I don't know exactly what the purposes were, except that I have seen people say that they're probably different kinds of hunting dogs. So one of them might have been ratters. Absolutely. That's possible. So a lot of shoes
1: have been found at Vindalanda. Hundreds of shoes, enough for everyone who lived there to have owned several pairs. High fashion shoes, practical shoes, sandals, disgusting bath clogs, military sandals. Shoes have been found for men, women, and children. The amount of shoes shows a relatively high standard of living for the time. In later medieval society, for instance, Most non-wealthy people would not have had more than one pair of shoes, but so many shoes have been found at Mindalanda that it's likely even those without a lot of means had more than one pair.
0: Other interesting finds include a wooden toilet seat that looks like it could have come out of a modern bathroom. The toilet seat is a really big discovery. People were real excited about that. And a pair of very well-used boxing gloves. And I actually really like the boxing gloves because they really show a lot of wear. This is the only pair of Roman boxing gloves ever found. One of the gloves is significantly larger than the other, and the larger glove is very worn on the edge that would have made contact with an opponent's face. It had punched a lot of people. It had even been repaired. The smaller glove still carries the impression of its owner's knuckles. I think that's cool. And boxing would have been an activity that people in the military did as a training exercise and also kind of an extracurricular gambling activity. It's fascinating.
1: We don't even know it was a Roman boxing glove. It could have been an auxiliary's boxing glove.
0: Those cultures did blend, especially towards the end of the of the wall's history. So it's a little bit difficult to say, but there have been, I think, mosaic and other art depictions of boxing gloves in Roman
1: culture that indicate that these were Roman boxing gloves. Jenny, I'm going to hit you with maybe the most astonishing discovery at Vindolanda. I'm so ready for this. It involves the Vindolanda tablets. The Vindolanda tablets are the second oldest handwritten documents ever found in Britain. The oldest are the Bloomberg tablets discovered under the Mithraeum in London, and these date from 50 to 80 AD. The Vindolanda tablets were written on thin, postcard-sized slivers of wood using carbon-based ink and they date from roughly between 92 and 103 A.D., so a bit earlier than Hadrian's Wall, which is fascinating. But they are still immensely valuable in showing what life would have been like in this area around the time of Hadrian's Wall.
0: These tablets were first discovered in 1973, The original excavators thought that they were wood shavings until someone found two stuck together and peeled them apart to find writing on the inside. That writing was unlike any researchers had seen before. It took a while to translate them because they were written in this kind of casual, informal cursive Latin that's very different from the formal writing in most inscriptions which archaeologists were used to. The tablets themselves are made from alder, oak, and birch that was grown locally, as opposed to stylus tablets made from non-native wood and imported, which was
1: another common writing material in different parts of Roman Britain. These documents provide a treasure trove of information about what life was like on the British frontier. They include personal messages sent between soldiers and their families and friends, as well as correspondence between soldiers and their commanding officers, official military documentation, and messages dealing with trade and commerce and ordering supplies. Over 752 of the tablets have been translated, and more are being dug up every day. Perhaps the most famous is a message from Claudia Severa, wife of the commander of an unnamed fort near Vindolanda, to her sister, Sulpicia Lepidina, the wife of Vindolanda's commander. It says, Claudia Sever to her Lepidina greetings, on 11th September, sister, for the day of the celebration of my birthday, I give you a warm invitation to make sure that you come to us to make the day more enjoyable for me by your arrival. If you are present, give my greetings to Eurus my Aelius, and my little son, send him their greetings. And this was written, this bit right here is written in a second different hand, and it says, I shall expect you, sister, Farewell, sister, my dearest soul, as I hope to prosper and hail.
0: Yeah, so I've seen historians suggest that maybe the second hand was Claudia Severa's actual handwriting and the rest of it was written by a scribe who probably would have been enslaved, or maybe it was the other way around. So this may be the earliest writing by a Roman woman ever found. Which is astonishing. When I told Jen this, she didn't believe me. I had to Google it. She was like, no, what about Agrippina the Younger? And I'm like, well, Agrippina the Younger's memoirs were destroyed.
1: They were not her memoirs, they were her commentaries. She was very firm that they were commentaries. She was doing exactly what Julius Caesar did. She didn't want them to be emotional. She wanted them to be detached works of what she did behind the scenes.
0: It was kind of like documenting a war
1: in a way. Well, it was. She was documenting everything from when she was a child to the death of her father to terrible, terrible husbands, her exile, her sisters, Caligula, and then her marriage to Claudius, and then her son.
0: Those commentaries did not make it out of the reign of Nero, let me tell you what.
1: No way. No way. Or they are buried and hidden somewhere so well that one day someone will find it and then I will feel so happy. Yeah. I wanted to know if maybe Octavia wrote something down or Agrippina the Elder because we know she was stationed on the front sometimes with Germanicus. So wouldn't she have written letters? But nothing of it survives. The only woman I can think of who we knew that there was something that survived was Cleopatra, but she wasn't Roman.
0: Number one, all those women you listed, I'm sure, wrote things. They just didn't come down to us. And if you look at how things do come down to us from... The ancient Roman and Greek time periods, what usually happens is Christian monks from the 1000s value it enough to copy it out hundreds of times. And they just didn't value the writings of women, it looks like, because a lot of that hasn't survived. Um, Cleopatra, there is something that survived of her own handwriting. And um, we talk about it in one of our Antony and Cleopatra episodes. I forget which one. I think it might have been the fourth. It's just like, make it so. It's signed on an order that Cleopatra gave to bribe one of her
1: friends to do a favor for her. Do you know who I'm surprised. I mean, we know we've got ancient Greek stuff that came down to us because at some point in time, someone copied the writing of Sappho, right? We know that. We know that her poetry exists for a reason.
0: Cleopatra had treatises on medicine and makeup and all kinds of different stuff. And those were in circulation up until the medieval time period. But there was just some point when some medieval monk made a decision not to copy some of the stuff from one of those original documents. And that's why we don't have it today.
1: We made a decision or, I mean, to be generous, which maybe is not necessary, there was a fire. Sure. uh, Yeah, sure. That could have happened as well. Anyway, so...
0: That's why this is the earliest writing by a Roman woman ever found. This birthday invitation here, this dates from early hundreds AD. And it is also the earliest writing by a woman ever found in Britain as well. And it indicates that this was a relatively safe region for the time. If it was, you know, just normal and fine for a wealthy Roman woman, very robbable, to travel several miles along a military road on a contested military border to attend a birthday party.
1: Yeah, and also, you know, when you're probably thinking, well, she could travel with soldiers, but sure, and I'm sure she did. I'm sure she had an escort, of course, right? Absolutely, but the reality is that her husband, who is the commander of the fort, didn't feel like he was wasting his escort sending them out. He didn't think that it was so dangerous it wasn't worth her going.
0: Yeah, or at least not worth going for a trivial reason like a birthday party. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. So there are other interesting finds as well. One is from one Roman soldier to another, telling his friend that he's sending him two pairs of sandals, two pairs of socks, and two pairs of underwear, and sending greetings to all their messmates and good fortune from the gods. And this is very important to me because it confirms that Roman soldiers wore underwear. And you all know I have a gisa about people wearing underwear. You're not allowed to talk to Jen if you're freeballing. I can't handle it. It really bothers me. She won't talk
0: to you if you're not wearing underwear. She just will not. I've tried. She won't. I can't take you seriously
1: if you're not wearing underwear. I just can't. Can't do it. Am I wearing underwear right now? You don't actually know for sure. Am I taking you seriously? You don't actually know for sure. <laughs>
0: Probably not. I mean, I
1: assume you're not, just in general. And I assume you're not wearing underwear. So, you know, good pro quo there. <laughs> just in general. And this is how our relationship works. <laughs> So, lots of other letters from soldiers were found, showing a higher degree of literacy in the Roman army than you might suspect.
0: So, a lot of the correspondence was to Flavius Serialis, who was the commander of the fort, and this was mainly his stash of mail that people are still digging up today. Much of it is from his subordinates asking about his instructions and orders and requesting provisions, including one cavalry officer's request that Serialis send more beer to his garrison because they'd drunk their entire store. Right on. The Vindolanda tablets hint at a comfortable life for the higher-ranking officers at the fort and also show us that their families lived with them, so you would have had women and children living inside the fort as well. And it would have been a fairly luxurious life for high-ranking officers and their families for an isolated military border town. The Vindolanda tablets are from the fort's early phases when it would have been built in wood and fairly basic, but when the fort was built in stone from the 200s AD onward, the accommodations for higher-ranking officers and their families would have been even more luxurious, with private baths and heated floors in their quarters. Swoon, I want heated floors. I don't even have heated floors in my own quarters. Like, they live better than me. Jeez.
1: I don't. So the accommodations for regular enlisted men would have been more basic. Generally, a contubernium of eight men shared a pair of rooms in a barracks. Privacy would have been basically non-existent. The ancient Roman army had an impressive supply chain infrastructure, and food and supplies would have been imported to Hadrian's Wall from all over the empire. The soldiers would have been given a daily ration of grain, which was generally wheat, supplemented with a ration of meat such as bacon, oh bacon, mutton, or beef.
0: Not a whole bacon pig, though.
1: No, there's only one person who gets a bacon pig, and that's the Morgan.
0: It's the Morrigan because she's blackmailing Connor out of it. She doesn't even want it. Give me your bacon pig, Morrigan.
1: No, you can keep it, Morgan. Just stay away. Don't be washing my innards at the ford. I don't need you up in my business that much. I just, I need to get back to where we are. It wasn't always the case that they got a meat ration. There was a fort on the Antonine Wall at Bereston that was entirely vegetarian. I wonder if that's because the auxiliary that they were from was vegetarian. Like the culture? Possibly. I don't know. Alcohol was also part of their regular ration. Usually it was wine, cheap varieties like acetum or posca, which were closer to vinegar than wine as we know it today. Beer was also popular, as evidenced in the Vindolanda tablets. Auxiliaries from Northern Europe tended to drink beer more than wine.
0: Grain was issued unground and unprepared. The men had to grind it themselves, and they usually did this all together in their two-room barracks. It was like, you know. A- it was a communal bonding experience. Yeah, sort of a bonding experience. Sometimes helped by common law wives or slaves. There was no mess hall. The men ate in or near their barracks twice a day in the morning and at night. Incidentally, we mentioned that there would have been women and children living in the forts, the families of high-ranking officers. Lower-ranking soldiers were technically not allowed to marry at all up until the time of Septimius Severus, which was sometime in the late hundreds to early 200s AD. Before then, enlisted men were not allowed to marry because the Roman state didn't want to be
1: responsible for supporting the families of its soldiers. However, the term of service during this time was 25 years, and it would have been unreasonable to expect these men not to have relationships. Soldiers in the army frequently had long term relationships that were basically unofficial marriages, especially when they were stationed in one place for a long time and had the opportunity to mingle with civilians. It was also pretty common for soldiers' wives to be former slaves. The soldier would buy the enslaved woman, free her, and then marry her, which, ugh.
0: This was apparently a really common way people met each other. Did she have a choice to marry this guy or not? I don't know.
1: Everything is wrong with that. Yeah. Some studies say about 60% of soldiers at any given point would have common-law wives and families, and senior officers tended to look the other way and allow this. It was very common for boys to be born in these camps to common law couples and admitted into the Roman army when they were of age. Many Roman soldiers came from families like these.
0: There would have been a lot of men in the Roman army who had been born to soldiers, grown up in the camps, and then enrolled as soon as they were of age too. So they would know nothing else, you know?
1: That literally is their whole sort of world. And of course, that's what they're going to be when they grow up.
0: Yeah, it's their whole life. So it's not clear whether soldiers' families lived with them at all the forts along the wall, or whether it was more common for families to live in the Vikis. However, at Vindolanda, there's significant evidence that common-law wives and children We're living not just with high-ranking officers, but in the barracks themselves with the lower-ranking soldiers, in the contiberniums, with the eight men, in the two-room barracks. That's because lots of objects, including shoes and children's toys, have been found in the thick layers of rushes and straw on the floors of the barracks. So these barracks would have been very crowded. Each two-room quarters would be home to an eight-man contibernium and potentially their wives and families. Archaeological evidence shows that Vindolanda's barrack floors were strewn with thick layers of rushes, straw, and local heather, and that it wasn't swept out when it was soiled, it was just covered over with a new layer, so the barrack rooms all had these thick, very dirty mats of rotting plant matter on the floor. These mats collected lost items such as shoes, toys, broken weapons, kitchen implements, and various other things, which is great for archaeology, but probably not that
1: hygienic to live in. This is why I think that every time you had a new sort of like group of soldiers who were stationed at these barracks, they literally ripped it down and built it up again.
0: Oh yeah, it's because of the mats, obviously. They just like peeked into those barracks and were like, oh god, we have to burn this down. Burn it down and start again. (laughs) So... Strength reports from Vindolanda include mention of 10 men hospitalized with inflammation in the eyes, possibly from the smoky environment in the barracks.
1: Poop! Poop in the mats! Other bodily (laughs) fluids?
0: I don't want to even speculate.
1: So this was the living situation for the infantry. But a lot of the forts housed cavalry as well as infantry, and the men and horses lived in some pretty tight quarters as well. Not all of the forts housed cavalry, or it's not that clear if they did or didn't, but at the Wall's End Fort at Hadrian's Wall, there were long barracks blocks that at first glance looked similar to all the other barracks found, but they weren't. These long buildings were arranged in two-room rows, with the men's quarters on one side with a hearth and a horse stable on the other, with shallow trenches that collected the horse's urine, and let's be honest, the men's urine. The men's and horses' quarters would have been right next to each other, but they weren't connected. You had to enter each from the outside.
0: If your room was in the middle, you had to go, like, all the way around to get to the horse stable. So maybe the men weren't peeing in there.
1: Or maybe they were. So each room housed three men and each stable three horses. So that's a lot of horses in one stable. It is, and it actually is a lot of horses in one stable. The horses must have liked each other, or at least learned to live with each other.
0: Well, they had to have, because horses are pretty hierarchical as well, so, like, they could have been really nasty with each other if they didn't get
1: along. There was an alpha horse. If you pissed that alpha horse off, you were getting bit in the buttocks all the time. Anyway. There may have been attic space that provided storage and living space for grooms, which were usually enslaved people. But the second floors, if they existed, haven't survived.
0: So cavalrymen lived very closely with their horses, and these rooms would no doubt have been full of the smells of horse manure and urine and leather tack and sweat and cooking food and other smells of men. However... Many of the men stationed on the wall were auxiliaries, drawn from more agrarian cultures where living in close proximity to their animals was very common, so they may have been really used to this kind of living arrangement. And
1: let's be honest, where they're living is very, very cold in the winter, so probably keeping your eight people in one room, heating that one room, is probably a lot easier than eight separate tiny freezing rooms.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
1: One intriguing mystery at Vindolanda are the wooden circular huts inside the fort. This is weird because these forts were always built to a specific plan, and that plan never included round, thatched houses like these. Romans didn't build these kinds of houses. The people who did were native Celts. These wooden circular huts appeared in one of the later stone iterations of the fort in the early 200s under Septimius Severus, who led a genocidal campaign against the Highland Celts at the end of his reign, because he was a dick. Who were his sons, Jenny? Geta and Caracalla, Jen. I mean, Caracalla, also famous bag of dicks. Anyway, some historians have suggested perhaps the roundhouses were built to accommodate local Celts taking refuge from that violence inside the fort. Maybe.
0: Maybe, that's one theory. Maybe these were the homes of Celtic allies to the Romans stationed on the wall, people who would have traded with them, fed them, and brought them intelligence from the north. Those northern tribes targeted by Severus might have seen these Celts who worked with the Romans on a regular basis as collaborators and traitors, and their lives
1: may have been in danger. However, it would be wrong to suggest that the relationship between soldiers on the wall and local Celts was a friendly one. There are signs of violence against native Celts. One find dug up at Vindolanda was the skull of a beheaded Celtic person from the 200s AD, which had once been impaled on a spike. Studies show that the man had been killed by a series of violent sword blows to the head and then decapitated.
0: There is some evidence that the soldiers on Hadrian's Wall took up the Celtic custom of headhunting. Or maybe it was already part of their culture as these were auxiliaries. Like, there were Gauls up there, Germans up there. These were people who were known to have headhunting as part of their culture. A tombstone found in nearby Lancaster, possibly dating from the 1st or 2nd centuries AD, depicts a Roman cavalryman brandishing the severed head of an enemy. The inscription says he was a member of the Ala Augusta, one of the most prestigious legions stationed on the wall. It had been given the honorific Augusta for its exceptional valor.
1: An altar found near Corbridge, a ford on the Stainhope Road, has an inscription commemorating an event where a cavalry officer slaughtered a band of Corionotote. We don't know who the Corionotote are. This tribe of people is mentioned nowhere else but here.
0: It's kind of awful that their name is mentioned only once and it's where they were slaughtered. Isn't that awful? It's so, so horrible. There are These little clues that there was genocidal stuff going on up there. So a beautiful Celtic duck brooch was also discovered at Vindolanda. And this duck brooch is very distinctive. It's absolutely gorgeous. I see it all the time as like this
1: beautiful example of Celtic art.
0: I'll put a link in the show notes so you can see it
1: guys. It is so shiny. It is so beautiful. It is just, if I hadn't already made my Christmas list, I would be like, replica of this, please.
0: Yeah, I think there are replicas that you can buy. Oh, there's got to be. The thing about this duck brooch, this Celtic duck brooch, is that most sources that talk about it fail to mention that it was discovered in a ditch inside the fort among the remains of local Celtic people who seem to have died violent deaths, probably at the hands of Roman soldiers, it was found in a mass grave of local Celtic
1: people inside of the fort at Vindolanda.
0: Yeah, so this was a, a relic of something genocidal that happened up there.
1: So there aren't really signs of any big battles on Hadrian's Wall, especially not early in its history. That didn't mean isolated skirmishes didn't happen. Hospital records at Vindolanda record six wounded at one point, possibly wounded in battle.
0: There was also violence in the forts in Viki, involving both soldiers and civilians. Two weeks ago, we told you about a couple discovered in one of the Vikis who were probably murder victims, and they weren't the only murder victims discovered in the vicinity of Hadrian's Wall. In 2010, archaeologists discovered the remains of a child aged between 8 and 10 years old, probably a girl, buried under the floorboards of one of the barracks at Vindolanda, in a position suggesting her arms were tied. She may have been killed by a blow to the head. The fact that she was buried in the barracks suggests that this was definitely foul play, because Romans didn't like to bury their dead near their living spaces. Traditional cemeteries were often situated outside the town walls, along the road leading out of the city. It would have been difficult to get a dead body outside of one of these forts without being spotted, And this suggests that the girl was possibly murdered inside the fort, maybe in the barracks itself, and buried where she died.
1: Which is just heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, and you think about it, it's like, was this a victim of domestic violence in one of these contiberniums? I don't know.
1: My true crime head just wants to go back and, like, look into it and try and figure out what happened, but we'll never know. So... There may also have been violence between the soldiers and civilians who lived in the Viki, the civilian communities that sprang up around the forts. The satirist, Juvenal, writing sometime between the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, paints a very clear picture of violence between soldiers and civilians. And I mean, just remember, Juvenal is a satirist.
0: He is, but his sense of humor is kind of like the it's funny because it's true variety.
1: Well, I mean, all satire, like when you think about political satire, which we've just witnessed and other things, comes from a place of mocking something that may or may not be true. But usually it's true.
0: <laughs> right. Like it might be exaggerated, but it is giving us kind of a window into
1: this world. hmm So Juvenal has a poem in his satires about how soldiers are above the law. In it, he explains that soldiers, unlike civilians, are tried for wrongdoings in military camps by their fellow soldiers, who are likely to be sympathetic to the accused and side with them to the point of violence towards the accuser. A person bringing a complaint was likely to get beaten for their troubles, and, I mean, this is still happening today. Juvenile explains that it's better not to tell anyone that your knocked out teeth, your swollen and bruised face, and that one eye, which the doctor doesn't think he can fix, are all from a beating by a soldier. Not to mention what might have also happened to poor women in this area. This is just like a beating violence. We're not talking necessarily about sexual violence, which also happened. Correct. Anyway, if you had this happen to you at the hands of a soldier, you shouldn't report it. You'll just make enemies of the fort and risk an even worse beating later. This
0: is Juvenal's advice if you happen to find yourself in any kind of military community in the ancient world, in Roman Britain.
1: (laughs) Juvenal was a satirist, and he may have been exaggerating, but he's writing real critiques about Roman society. So realistically, even though Hadrian's Wall rarely, if ever, saw military conflict, there was violence up there in the civilian communities, in the barracks between soldiers and civilians, and against the local Celtic population.
0: Hadrian's Wall was home to a string of diverse, cosmopolitan urban communities, bustling towns crowded up against busy forts where soldiers lived along with their families. These were rough frontier communities, but also safe enough for the higher-ranking officers and their families to travel between forts and conduct social visits. While the living quarters would have been crowded, unhygienic, and smoky for the rank-and-file soldiers, the standard of living would have still been higher than in many parts of the ancient world. And in the densely packed Viki, soldiers of all ranks could buy everyday necessities and luxury goods imported from all corners of the empire. They could attend fighting matches and public baths, go to bars and drink with their friends, gamble, visit brothels, and buy gifts for their families. It wouldn't have been an easy life by present-day standards, but by the standards of the time, it would have been as good as most places in the Empire. But Hadrian's Wall was actively manned for over 300 years, and during that time, the living conditions on the Wall changed drastically. In the next episode, we'll
1: look at how life on the Wall changed after Hadrian died. So that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, come find us on social at Ancient on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram.
0: And check out our website, AncientHistoryFangirl.com, where you can find
1: links to our merch, show notes, and all kinds of cool stuff. And consider joining our Patreon. Starting at just $2 a month, you can support the podcast and get access to ad-free episodes and exclusive extra episodes. We've got a great archive of extra episodes for Patreon subscribers.
0: Yeah, definitely check it out. And thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you in two weeks.